Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible with you, you can open to 1 John. We'll look at the last part of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That we should be called the sons of God. That we should be called the sons of God. thought I might be the only one who knew that song. <laughs> That's a, a song I learned in college. We sang regularly in a class, and it's... Uh, it's from the verse that we're looking at this morning, and it's one of the songs that's stuck with me, and it's become one of my favorite verses. So it's from uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Um, <clears throat> J.I. Packer, who probably a lot of us are familiar with, his, his book Knowing God, which has sold more copies than most other books read by Christians. Uh, it's about having a relationship with God. He says this in his book Knowing God. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Um, uh, adoption is not merely a metaphor for the Christian's relationship to God. It's not just one way among several to think about the relationship uh, that we have with him. God has revealed himself to be, fundamentally, as the triune God, he is Father, Son, and spirit, and through the spirit, we enjoy the son's communion with the father. By God's grace, the divine life is opened up to us, and we're caught up into it. We're in the very position of the second person of the Trinity. Adoption into the son's place in the Trinity is the ultimate purpose for which we were created and redeemed. And uh, last week, as we looked at our relationships with the Trinity, earlier in First John chapter 2, John started to get caught up himself in it, in this concept of abiding in the Son and in the Father and having the Spirit abide in us. Um, and for John, it evoked an outburst of wonder. And that's what we see. Uh, that's why we sing that song, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us. Look at this love. Look at this love. This is not just an intellectual religion, right? This is one that catches our hearts and our spirits, and it causes us to wonder and to glory at God's love for us. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to behold um, God's love together. We're going to talk about three things. Um, beholding God's love gives us confidence, gives us assurance, gives us confidence in this world and the next. Beholding God's love, secondly, it transforms us. And then third, after we've talked about beholding God's love, we're going to behold God's love together. We're going to look at the the kind of love that God has given to us. So um, let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, this morning, as we consider your word, um, it should be a delight to us, as it was for John to write it. 
This is not the natural tendency of our heart to delight in your word. We have to be won over by your grace and by your spirit. And so we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit now to renew our minds and to lift up our hearts so that we would be changed by this word into the likeness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. And now, little children, abide in him. Talking about Jesus. Abide in Jesus. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So throughout, as we talk about God's love, you know, beholding God's love, we're talking about the love that is the particularly Christian uh, notion of love that God has for us as a father. I mean, that's kind of a unique thing that uh, God is our father in, in Christianity, it's this adoptive love. It's us being brought into the family of God. That's the kind of love that we're talking about. And um, it's the kind of love that gives us confidence to face Jesus at the future judgment, is what this text is talking about, and then also confidence to face the world now uh, as we are misunderstood and as we're often uh, persecuted for our relationship to God. It says in 2.28, And now, little children, abide in him, abide in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So we uh, frequently profess here, we have a confession of faith uh, as we prepare to come to the the Lord's Supper. And we talk about the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed uh, a lot. So uh, we, we profess the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It could happen at any time. And uh, his return is to judge the living and the dead. It'll be the day of judgment. So when you imagine the end of the world, you know, the heavens being torn open by a trumpet blast that everyone hears, all the peoples of the earth from every time, whether they're dead or alive, being amassed together to stand before him in front of the righteous judge and the king of the new world, the king who suffered and died a brutal, hand, uh, a brutal death at the hands of sinners like us. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that day of judgment? Is it um, frightening? Is it uh, it bad news for you or is it good news? Do you you fear it? Are you anxious about it? Would you rather it weren't true? Do you try to pretend it away? Uh, Pretend that it's not true? Do you worry that your heart will sink when you think of that day, that Jesus will come back and he'll probably catch you in the middle of some sin? Right? Are you worried that your heart will sink and that you'll shrink away from him in shame and run to the mountains and call for the rocks to fall on you, to hide you from him? It's bad news, this concept of Jesus' return. It's bad news if you think that uh, you can make it through on your own. If you think your own good deeds somehow outweigh the bad deeds in your life. Uh, but God's judgment doesn't work that way. He doesn't grade on some scale. You can't compare yourself to other people and say, I'm probably safe in the judgment. Um, 
he judges, he judges according to a, the perfect standard of his own righteousness. His perfect standard of righteousness. And he says that there's only one human being that's ever passed that judgment. Right? There's only one. But if you've turned to that one, and you are united to that one, if you've called upon Jesus Christ for his mercy in this life, then you know Jesus not just as the one who's going to return to judge, but you know him as your Savior. And if you abide in him now, what John is saying, if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, uh, if you seek him in the scriptures and in prayer, if you have a relationship with him where you're thinking about him and your affections are set on him and you trust him, where you've been united to him by his Holy Spirit, then when he appears, it says, you can have confidence and not shrink away uh, in shame. Right? You can have confidence. You can imagine now hearing that trumpet blast with joy, and it could be a hopeful thing. It would be something that you long for because it's actually meant to be good news for his people, that he's coming back, right? and he's going to set all things right. It'll be the new beginning of all things, and you will enjoy from that moment on the glory, the full glory of the children of God. Right? Uh, Paul talks about it a little bit in Romans 8. He says that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. It's this future-looking hope. It's not the kind of hope that uh, the world has where maybe this or that will happen in the future if we're lucky. It's something that we know will happen because God has promised it to us and he has bought those promises by the blood of his Son that we will be openly and publicly and eternally adopted as sons of the Father who's in heaven when Jesus returns. It'll be the redemption of our bodies, right? The, um, the adoption of us as sons. And so uh, Paul says in another place, in Colossians 3, when Christ, who is your life, he is your life now, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Um, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Longer and Shorter Catechisms were written in uh, like 1646 or thereabouts, uh, probably something that most of us have never really read through, uh, thinking it's probably obscure. It's remarkably devotional, uh, devotional for being uh, so old, right? Such an ancient formulation of theology. Um, it's remarkably devotional. I'm going to read uh, question 90 of the larger catechism because it uh, speaks to this um, very well. What shall be done to the righteous at the day of judgment? The righteous are those who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Uh, they're not righteous in themselves. They're righteous because of him, because of his grace. So what shall be done to them at the day of judgment? At the day of judgment, the righteous, being caught up to Christ in the clouds, shall be set on his right hand, and there openly acknowledged and acquitted. They shall join with him in the judging of reprobate angels and men. And shall be received into heaven where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery. Filled with inconceivable joys. Made perfectly holy and happy both in body and soul. 
in the company of innumerable saints and holy angels, but especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. And this is the perfect and full communion which the members of the invisible church shall enjoy with Christ in glory at the resurrection and day of judgment. So his return means your glory, your full communion with the glorious triune God. His return means your glory, glorification as a child of God, and not because you deserve it. None of us do. Um, but because of his gracious love, because even now, he says, even now you are his child by his grace. God the Father sent his Son into the world to accomplish your adoption. He lived the life of a perfect son, a perfect human, in your place. And he was disowned by his Father at his death on the cross. He was disowned by his Father so that we who deserve to be disowned, we who deserve to be cast out, would be accepted and uh, instead adopted. It's through our union with the Son, then, that we are children of God. And not only in the future, but even now. He says in chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. You're God's children now. And uh, Jesus says, then, in John 15, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. So these are relational terms. For someone who's brought into a relationship where they have God as their father, then you abide in the Son, and you enjoy that relationship now. And Jesus is calling you to that. Abide in my love. That that relationship makes the future prospect of seeing God, seeing Jesus, a joyful prospect and one that we're longing for, right? Because we already know God is our Father now, and not just as our judge. If we abide in Him, if we abide in Christ then the future prospect of seeing Jesus will be a joyful one and not a fearful one. So do you have that kind of relationship with him? If you do, you'll have trouble in this world. You will have trouble in this world. Uh, In chapter 3, verse 1, the second part of it, he says, the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him, Christ. So there's a lot of ways in which if we have a relationship with Christ, then uh, we stick out like a sore thumb in this world, and uh, we receive varying degrees of negative treatment for our relationship with Jesus. Um, But that's okay. It's to be expected. Jesus told us that that was coming. It's to be expected, and we have resources for that. We have resources to be able to face the negative treatment that we receive for our relationship with God. Um, Jesus said again in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus is assuring us there that because of our relationship with him, we will receive the same kind of treatment that he received when he was in the world was not pleasant if you've read the Gospels. The treatment that Jesus received from the world was not pleasant. But it's encouraging. He's encouraging to us because it's because of our relationship to him that we're receiving the same kind of treatment that he received in the world. The tension that we have with the world is um, 
is a testimony to us that he really has chosen us out of the world, that he really has set his love on us, that we really are adopted into God's own family, that we really do share um, something of the nature of the Son of God himself, being a Son of God, that we really aren't of the world. We belong to him. God is our Father. Right? That's why the tension with the world. And so that tension is a testimony to the fact that that's true, that you really do know God. So as we consider ourselves part of God's family because of his gracious love toward us through his son, we have assurance, we have confidence that helps us to face the, the future judgment with joy and to face um, persecutions that we might endure in this world because we are beloved by God. And uh, so secondly, beholding God's love transforms us. It transforms us to be like the son of God. Um, in 2.29, he says, If you know that he, God, Um, is righteous. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You've been born again. You've been born of him. Uh, The fact that we have been born of God because of his fatherly adoptive love, that fact means that when we consider who our father is, what he is like, that he is righteous, it means that we will practice righteousness. It means that we will practice righteousness. And John's not saying, this is important, he's not saying that if we practice righteousness, then we'll, be, we'll deserve to be children of God. If we practice righteousness, you'll become children, or you'll deserve to be children. That's not at all what he's saying. It's clear from the text. He's saying, if we've been born of the righteous Father, then we will practice righteousness. Um, Martin Luther says, it's not the imitation of God that makes us sons of God, it's Sonship that makes imitators, like father, like son, like father, like son. Uh, The child lives like the parent because the child comes from the parent, shares the parent's nature in some way. So, uh, So Paul admonishes us in Ephesians 4, put on the new self. You've been made into a new creature through your rebirth, through your being born and adopted as a new child of God, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Um, Jesus said that we needed to be born again, regenerated by the Spirit, recreated in the Son's image through our union with the Son. And Thomas Wynandy tells us how that happens uh, in a book called The Father's Spirit of Sonship. It's a great little book on the Trinity. Um, He says that because of the Spirit dwelling within us, we are assumed into the very depths of God's inner being. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have become sons and daughters of God. The Holy Spirit, the spirit of sonship, transforms us into the glorious image of God that is Christ, fashioning us into sons of God. Because the spirit of the Son dwells in us, the spirit of the Son makes us more sun-like, makes us more like Christ. Jesus is the Son of God by nature, we are sons and daughters of God by adoption. We're brought in, right, through adoption, but we are children, and there will be a family resemblance, right? There will be a family likeness in righteousness, John says. And the main way that that happens is through our beholding him. It's through our considering of his love to us. It says in um, chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, 
We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So the Christian hope is not that we will be absorbed into the essence of God, not that we will somehow be transformed to be like Christ in his uh, divine nature, right? but that we will be like Christ in his human nature, that he is properly and perfectly related to the Father as humans are meant to be. Right? We'll be like Christ relationally because of his relationship with the Father. We'll, we will enjoy that perfect relationship, which means we won't sin anymore. Right? Um, we will be made perfectly holy and happy. There will be a complete transformation of our humanity, body and soul, to free us from sin and from the effects of sin, misery, corruption, suffering, death. And you don't become a God-man like Jesus is a God-man. He's unique. But as Jesus is perfectly and gloriously human, so you will be when he appears. Because when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The single greatest transformational event in our existence will be when we see Jesus face to face. And it's that seeing that is transforming. It's beholding that is glorifying. When we see the Son of God in his perfection, we will become perfect human children of God, sharing his own glory. And that's the that's the Christian mechanism, if you will, for our sanctification, for our growth in becoming like Christ. The Christian mechanism for that is beholding God's love. It's seeing Jesus. It's looking to Christ, which produces transformation. If you look at him, you will be changed. That's what it says. When you see him face to face, you will be absolutely, perfectly, and eternally changed. That's going to happen ultimately at his return. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So there's a contrast between the way that we look at Jesus now and the way that we will see him when we see him face to face and the effects that that has on us now and then. But we do see the effects of it even now. Again, Paul says in uh, Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In this present age, the grace of God has appeared to us in Christ. And in this present age, it has transformational power for us. Looking at Jesus and his redemption. So our tendency, I think, um, maybe this gets a little bit abstract, but our tendency is to view glorification, to view that one single greatest transformational event that has yet to come uh, when Jesus Christ returns, to view that in light of progressive sanctification, in light of uh, what we're going through right now. Christians grow a little bit by little bit to become more like Jesus, 
And glorification is basically that, but 100%. Just cranked it up, right, all the way. Um, but maybe we need to try viewing sanctification in light of glorification. Right? Sanctification in light of glorification. Uh, glorification is the thing that we were made for. It's the thing that we were redeemed for. It's perfect communion with God where we share Jesus' own glory. He shares it with us forever. And now what you see is little tiny glimpses of that, the transformation that that makes in our lives. It's just little tiny glimpses of that great event. Beholding our God and our Savior Jesus Christ in his gracious love is what changes us now as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of his glory. And John says in uh, chapter 3, verse 3, Everyone who thus hopes in Jesus purifies himself as Jesus is pure. Everyone who has that hope in Christ purifies himself as Christ is pure. And that means that Jesus' purity is the pattern for our purity. And it means more than that. He's not only the pattern for our purity. His purity is also the resource for our purity. Since his purity is our purity. We share it with him through our union with him, through his spirit. So look at him. So look at him and be purified. What are you doing to look at him? What are you doing to behold him, to get him in front of you? John, uh, I mean, sorry, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we look at Jesus, as we look at the Lord Jesus, the Spirit transforms us from one glory to the next. So now, uh, then, let us behold his glory, his love, uh, together for a few minutes. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Really, it's, um, it's kind of a dry translation, isn't it? It's not as good as maybe the old uh, translations. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. He's lavished on us. He's given it to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And really, the, the language there, the original language, is, is it's an exclamation of wonder. Behold. And uh, literally, that, what kind of love? That It's an idiom that means, uh, originally meant... From what country is this love? It's like saying, this is out of this world kind of love. What planet is this from? From what country is the love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God? And we are. We are. Beholding here is, is like the difference between knowing about something, kind of having it in your head intellectually, and knowing something in a transformational way. And Tim Keller, uh, who's pastor of a PCA church in uh, Manhattan, has probably one of the best sermons I've ever heard on any passage, and it's on this passage. Uh, You can find it on our blog. I linked to it this week. But um, he says in that sermon that John doesn't just tell us to know God. He's doing it in front of us. He's doing it in front of us. And he says that knowing God is when the truth about God bubbles up and overflows the mind and goes ballistic in your life 
when the truth overshadows you. That's what it means to know God, to behold, like John is beholding here. Like he's caught up in wonder and amazement. And that's what John's doing as he comes to chapter 3, verse 1. The truth of God's fatherly love has come alive to him. It's come alive to him, and he says, look, look at this. And there's an old Puritan, uh, Thomas Goodwin, who um, has an illustration. It's, It's like a boy walking with his father, and the boy knows that he's loved. The boy's had this relationship with his father. It's been generally characterized by love. He knows. He's assured, right? He uh, intellectually knows that his father loves him. But then as they're walking along, the father picks up the boy and tosses him in the air and hugs him and kisses him and whispers to him, I love you and I will do anything for you. I will do anything for you. Is there any new information in that? in that action on the Father's behalf. There's no new information. The Son is not learning anything new, but He's experiencing it. He's not more of a Son than He was before. He doesn't get new information that He didn't have, but that information becomes new. It becomes alive, and it overshadows Him. And uh, that's, that's what's happening here in John's Gospel. There's a spirit of profound wonder that accompanies beholding. What a miracle! What a miracle that God would make me one of his children. That's what characterizes us in our relationship with God. Our response to him is, I can't believe it. Behold, where did this come from? And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? As we're going to sing, how can it be? How can it be? And here's the truth of the gospel for our beholding. The triune God... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who from all eternity has dwelt in blessed communion, infinite eternal joy, infinite eternal love, had no need at all to be happy because he was infinitely happy, this one God, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sharing perfect love with one another forever in the relationships of the Trinity. That God chose not to be without you. That, that God, before he made anything, chose not to be without you. There was never a time before you were known to him, known intimately to him, and loved by him, by the Father, as an adopted child in his son. There was never a time before that. He made us, and then he watched our race sin against him and rebel against him. And he waited ages patiently for the right time. And then the Father sent the Son of his love. Choosing not to be without you, the Son came and he took on our humanity. He added a human nature to himself. He added a created, limited, finite nature to himself forever. From that point on. Always God and man from that point on, because that's the kind of God he is, because that's what's in his heart, because he chose not to be without you. He pledged solidarity to us in his baptism. He didn't have to be baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. He didn't have any sins. He was baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. He united himself. He pledged himself to us. Corporate solidarity in his baptism, where he confessed our sins for us, and received the Holy Spirit on our behalf in order to be able to pour him out on us. 
And the son went to the cross and died for us. And we don't often let that just sink in, do we? We mention it in passing, it seems, a lot of the times. Uh, But he died for us. Have you seen dead people? Have you seen someone who's died? Have you seen that? Have you seen people who died because they were viciously murdered? Have you seen that? He endured that for the joy that was set before him because he chose not to be without you. He chose not to be without you. He wanted the joy of making you his brothers and his sisters in the family of God forever. Through our union with him, in his death, we died, the scripture says. Because we're united to him, in his death, we died and our sin was destroyed forever. In his resurrection, we were made alive to God. In his going to heaven, his ascension into heaven, our life was hidden and protected in heaven with him where nothing can threaten it. And in his return, because of our union with him, will be our glory. The full revelation of us as sons and daughters of God in Christ, with Christ. That's the Christian hope. That's the Christian hope, and uh, Paul says in Romans 5 that hope does not disappoint. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That's why our hope doesn't disappoint, because God has already given us his Holy Spirit. He's already showered his love upon us through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Augustine and Aquinas, a couple of ancient theologians in the church, Uh, talk about the Holy Spirit well, I think, and they say that the proper name, if you want to give the Holy Spirit a proper name other than the Holy Spirit, of course, uh, the proper name of the Holy Spirit is love. The proper name of the Holy Spirit is gift. He is God-given. The Father gives the Holy Spirit to the Son, and the Son returns the Holy Spirit to the Father, and we're caught up in that relationship where the Father and the Son give us their spirit, who is the love of God, the gift of God. And I think that's what John means when he says, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us. He has given it to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. He hasn't just loved us. This is not the usual language for being loved by somebody. It's not just behold how the Father has loved us. It's behold how the Father has given his love, lavished his love bestowed his love on us, right? He has given something to us, and that something is his love because that something is his spirit, the spirit of the Son. And the spirit's not just a third-rate minor deity. He is fully God. He is holy God. He's the only God there is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, each one being fully God. Um, We don't know how that works. We know that it's true from the scriptures, but it means that... um, As he has given us the spirit of the Son, he's not only called us children, he's not only said that about us, he has made us, really, his children by giving us the gift of his spirit, giving us his love. Our salvation is more than just a legal, forensic declaration that doesn't change anything. It is that. It is certainly that. It is certainly legal and forensic, at least. At least. It is more than that. Our salvation is a real adoption. It's a real personal relationship that we have. It's, It's really being made new in the likeness of the Son. 
It's a real adoption through our union with him by the spirit of the son who is poured into our hearts. It's the love of God, the adoptive love of, the God, of God for us. Second Peter 1 says that God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. We don't know exactly what that means, but somehow we are caught up into the very life of the Trinity itself in the place of the Son. So adoption is not merely a metaphor, among other metaphors, among other ways of uh, understanding the Christian's relationship to God. God has revealed himself to be fundamentally Father, Son, and Spirit. And through the Spirit, we enjoy the Son's communion with the Father. We enjoy that place in the relationships of the Trinity. His divine life is open to us, and we're caught up into it. So it's what we were made for. It's what we're redeemed for. We have the Father as our Father through the Spirit, in the same way that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has the Father as his Father. We have those relationships. And that's all a free gift of his grace. You didn't earn it. You couldn't deserve it. You could never do enough to to merit God's favor in this way. It's a free gift of his grace because that's who he is. He's a God who is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, who forgives sins and draws people like us into his very family because he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thomas Wynandy said, Should not the contemplations of the mysteries of our faith be a delight? Especially if the contemplation is that of the immeasurable and unsurpassable fount of all mysteries, the Most Holy Trinity. So I'll close with Psalm 27, which we read earlier in the Old Testament reading. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this, uh, this prayer, this psalm, does reflect the desires of our hearts because of the renewal that you've given us through your Spirit. You've made us your children, and as your children, we long to see you face to face. As your children, we long to behold the glory and the beauty of the Lord forever in his temple, among his people. Um, So we pray that uh, you would convince us, that you would assure us that this truly is awaiting for us at the day of judgment, that we do not need to fear the return of the Lord Jesus, but that we can look forward to it with hope. And we pray that that hope, that assurance, that confidence, and uh, the little glimpses that we have of your glory now would transform us so that we would live like the sons and daughters of the triune God. We pray that uh, for our joy and for the sake of your kingdom going forth in this world and for the glory of your holy name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.